I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to a special episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Jakob Fugger. I hope I said that right, or close enough. That's what I've been going with. Okay. And we didn't put him on our list because his links with England are minimal. But mm-hmm. he's well worth doing since, according to the title of, the, one, of the, one of the books I read, he was the richest man who ever lived. I wonder, when was that written? Oh, recent. Recent. Book. Recent? Really? Yeah. I, can't, I can't show you the exact date. Wow. I don't know about the gates and the musks of this, musks of this world, but I think if you take the, the whole economy of the world, he owned a bigger chunk of it than they own of the economy these days. Wow. Wow. He was born in Augsburg in 1459 to a family which was already rich, selling textiles from Augsburg to Frankfurt, Cologne, and Venice. And I'm assuming this is in the German Principates? Yeah. Okay. Augsburg, incidentally, takes its name from Emperor Augustus. It was founded in AD 41, and Tacitus described Augsburg as splendidissima. Aww. You can't get better than that. No. Maximilian used it as his base, in as much as he used anywhere as his base. One of the reasons that Augsburg had been able to carry on growing and thriving as a textile town was because the Black Death miraculously bypassed the town when everywhere else was being decimated. Really? Hmm. I wonder how that happened. I don't know. I didn't go back to 13, whatever it is. But now my head's just going, because if it was that wealthy, that means that they had trade, and trade Mm. would have brought it in. Maybe they'd had complete shutdown. Maybe they had a lockdown. Oh, maybe they were smart and actually followed the lockdown protocols. (laughs) Humans be smarter. (laughs) Well, whatever it is, it did the trick. Anyway, I said Fugas were rich, but they were normal rich. Plenty of other people were as rich as they were. But when Jacob died, he owned just under 2% of all European economic output. So that's Jeez. a completely different scale of rich. Yes. He could have made a bid for emperor easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was his thing. No, he just likes using them for money cows. Cash cows. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Cash cows. <laughs> money cows. <laughs> Jacob's grandfather, Hans, had been a peasant who left the farm for the big city. Really? Mm. So in two generations, they go from being a peasant with pretty much nothing to the richest person in the world. I know. Unbelievable, isn't it? Wow. But I think Fuga's money-making genes probably came down from Hans because Hans quickly became a wholesaler of textiles. Which is not easy to get into. You have to have the money to purchase the fabric, and fabric was really expensive. As that's the bit of his life that we haven't got, the bit where he went from peasant to textile trader. Okay. But he married twice, both times to daughters of the heads of the Weavers Guild, which didn't do him any harm. So he must have been good looking, otherwise that never would have happened. <sighs> yeah, he might have been very charismatic, person of all. Well, we'll I go don't... with that instead of the incident in Dudley route where he knows secrets and just demands to marry the women. I don't know. What sort of secrets were peasants? No, I don't know. I don't know. When he died, his second wife ran the business for 21 years. And when she died, she was one of the largest taxpayers in Augsburg. So that was a big leap in his life or their lives. Wow. Yeah. Hans had two sons, 
One was Andreas, and the other one was called Jacob the Elder, although obviously only in retrospect, because <laughs> <laughs> that would just be weird. Yes. And Jacob the Elder married Barbara, the daughter of the man who ran the mint. That doesn't sound like a German name to me. Barbara, no. No. Hmm. After Jacob the Elder died, when our Jacob was ten, Barbara ran the business for 30 years. So, wow. And during that time, she had three daughters and seven sons as well. Uh, no, not when she was a widow. She just not had them before. <laughs> no, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, she had to look after them. <laughs> so I was, I was thinking about her time ratio, about how much she could spend looking after <laughs> ten children and how much oh, she, she would have to give to the business. The seventh son was our Jacob Fugger, which sounds very biblical, doesn't it? Yes, the it does. son, Jacob. He would be a wizard if he was the seventh son of a seventh son. No, only two for the first ones. Mm. You would think that having two women successfully running the business after the deaths of their husbands would encourage Jakob Fuga to include women. But no. Really? He had quite firm ideas about that. <sighs> His mother was overbearing, apparently. <laughs> Maybe. With six other sons, his mother didn't need another merchant son and so destined little Jacob for the priesthood. Oh, that didn't work. Well, no, luckily for Jacob, when he was 14, just when he was, about, he was due to become a monk, his mother changed her mind. And I don't know whether it was his nagging, because I can't... It's not, not a natural for the priesthood. <laughs> well, how would he cope with that vow of poverty? <laughs> There'd be constant scams going on in the monastery. We need a new lead roof. I can get that for you. <laughs> As we saw in Maximilian's episode, the Fugas bailed out Emperor Frederick when no one else would. And they didn't lend him money, but some silk and wool to get him some decent clothes. <laughs> yes, I remember. We don't trust you to have the money, so we'll give you exactly what you need so you can't misuse it. <laughs> and they received a coat of arms for that. It's three lilies for respectability, truthfulness and rationality. And that oh. side of the family was then, from then on, called the Fugas of the Lily. Oh, that actually makes sense. Like, you're not having to wonder why they were given those particular emblems. Other people, you look at the emblems and think, hmm, doesn't match. Hmm. Yeah, the other side of the family have got a different name. I can't remember what it is now, but they're the Lilies. Jacob may have seen the fact that someone as nominally powerful as the Emperor Frederick couldn't get credit from common and garden shopkeepers and realised there was one thing that could raise someone to the level of emperor, and that's money. Money, yes. So he might have looked at the emperor and thought how shabby he was. <laughs> and yet he was emperor, so yeah, he's the one way out. He learned his trade in Venice, which was an important trading post, because it linked the Silk Road with the Rhine. Right. So it was ideally situated to import all sorts of things, especially spices like pepper. Pepper. Jacob stayed and traded in the Fondarco de Tedeschi. It's the warehouse or depot of the Germans. Okay. And all Germans traded from there. And it wasn't just camaraderie amongst the Germans. It was the law. Germans had to trade from that one place. I'm not sure Is... if that was, that was the case for other 
nationalities. I presume it probably was. Yeah, they were called enclaves throughout Europe. And if you go around to the trade rolls or the tax rolls, they will say German enclave, Italian enclave, Jewish enclave. Mm. They're everywhere in Europe. I came across them a couple of times when I was researching Edward III. So they've been there for a very long time. Edward III is well, well, well beyond or earlier than what we're doing now. But yeah, for some reason, I guess maybe it was easier to tax them because they'd also be paying what could be called a poll tax. You would be paying for being a non-resident an additional tax on top of everything else. Also, I suppose if you fell out with their home country... You could kick them out? You could kick them out or you could just keep an eye on them and make sure they don't rebel. Yeah. Yeah. It was very common. I always assumed it was racially based, but maybe you're right. It was just for politics. Mm. Don't know. But it was in Venice that Fuga started wearing the gold hat, which would become one of his hallmarks. And that's was a gold-coloured gold hat, not a solid okay. gold hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did have gold thread. Yeah, probably. For all I know, it was woven. It's more a sort of, not quite a fez, a sort of soft fez shape without okay. a little tassel on the top. Okay. Quite nice, actually. In 1478, Jacob was sent to Rome to deal with his elder brother's affairs because Marcus had died in one of the many bouts of plague. Oh, that's always heartbreaking. Although it's easier with an adult than a child. Yeah, Italy really did seem to be riddled with it. Everywhere was, but we keep hearing yes. about Milan and Florence and Rome and constantly getting plague. If we look at the geography of Italy, a lot of boats ended up stopping there and it was all over the peninsula. It's basically a peninsula. So they have more access areas for ships with ports with the rats. Mm. And also the original plague, the Black Death, came from Genoa, didn't it? So or yes. it was a boat, boat coming into Genoa yes. that, that brought it into Europe. Yeah. Nasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Jacob returned to Augsburg to start working in the family firm. And the family sent him to Austria to look after their mining assets. And this was not a big part of their business, so it implies they were just easing him in gradually while not actually trusting him with the important textile side Like an of apprenticeship, it. basically. Hmm. That's smart. Well, Jakob excelled, and suddenly mining was up there with textiles as Fuga's top business concerns. <laughs> wow. Well done. Yeah. It's almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? The youngest son yeah. not being trusted with things and then... Coming up trumps. Yeah. The mines were owned by Archduke Sigmund of the Tyrol. They centred on a place called Schwarz, which had been a farming village until a girl out looking after the cows found a large lump of silver, and then suddenly Schwarz became bigger than Augsburg. Oh, I'm sorry. So she's out looking after the cows, and she just happens to know a, notice a large chunk of silver? That's the story. But I imagine it being, I mean, it's a sort of 15th century gold rush or silver rush, isn't it? I yeah. imagine them being it's quite a shanty town for quite a long time. It just never occurred to me that it would be on the surface. Hmm. Gold does in rivers. Gold panning, don't you? But in a field? Well, that's the story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You can't mess with the story. <laughs> These mines should have been an end to Sigmund's money problems, but he was busy bankrupting himself trying to emulate the Burgundian court. Ah. Uh -huh. 
He threw lavish parties where dwarfs jumped out of pies and wrestled each other. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And he had 50 illegitimate children to support. Holy cow! And I think we should do a cameo episode on him, because I really like him. <laughs> okay! Like him, but I really liked reading about him. Jeez. The only thing he didn't lavish money on was his country. And he was constantly living beyond his means, and to pay for it, he sold off the silver mines, bit by bit, to bankers who lent him money. Ah. And Fuga, Fuga wanted to be one of these bankers, but it took four years to muscle his way in, as Sigmund relied on Italian bankers. Okay. At least until 1489. And then Sigmund got involved in a border skirmish with Venice, which he only won because the Venetians were preoccupied with what the Turks were up to. And he was so buoyed by this that he wanted to carry on and attack the city of Venice itself. They all seem to do this. They have one yeah. little victory, and then they think, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> I can take on Venice. Well, obviously his bankers wanted nothing to do with it. But yeah, it doesn't this sound is smart. mad. <laughs> <laughs> And without money, he had to sue for peace. And under swinging and humiliating terms, Sigmund then went to his bankers to get them to pay reparations. Okay. And again, they said, no. No. <laughs> we told you not to do it. So if Sigmund didn't pay up, the Venetians, with their formidable war machine, would then roll into the Tyrol. Oh, no. But luckily, Jakob Fuga stepped up and offered to lend him the full amount. Uh, the deal, it's an odd one, and I don't really understand it, but the deal was that if Sigmund paid, Jacob would get the money from Schwarz until he was paid the full amount from Sigmund. So he'd get them all the money from the s silver mines. Okay. But if Sigmund didn't repay the money, then Jacob would just go under, because he'd, he'd, he'd lent him all the money. And I don't yes. know how that would work, because how would he know whether Sigmund was going to pay up or not? But that's, I read it over and over again. And I thought, am I getting this right? But anyway, that's what it said. So, Or does he get to keep the silver mine if he doesn't get paid? And then at least he has an income? Well, no, the implication was that the Fugas would actually go under. So it was a huge risk that he was taking. Really? So I don't know how that works. Maybe an economist can explain it. But anyway, Jacob also insisted, as terms of the loan, that he be given control of the state treasury. And that wasn't so he could ransack the country for every penny. It was so he could keep it on an even keel and make repayment more likely. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, if he left it up to Sigmund, he'd be paying dwarfs to jump out of pies all the time. <laughs> Did Sigmund agree to that? Yeah. Oh. He didn't have a lot of choice, really. Yeah. I mean, it was either that or the Phoenicians moved in. And if you remember, it was the Tyrol who wrote to Maximilian telling him that they weren't going to stump up the money for Perkins' invasion of England. Because hmm. that, was, that was when they wrote to him saying that we think we've, you've had this idea put into your head and <laughs> kindly get rid of it because we're not <laughs> having anything to do with it. <laughs> and I wonder if it, that was just because they were fed up with crazy emperors and their crackpot schemes because they had probably it had Sigmund and then they had Maximilian. They must have just been thinking, leave <laughs> What's us What's wrong be? with you people? <laughs> this set the scene for later Jacob transactions. He lent money when no one else would. So he was able to set his own terms, and it was very risky, but usually it paid off. Right. But each one, it sounded like when you were talking about Maximilian, it seemed like it was each time, I'll give you the money, but if I don't get it back, I'm bankrupt. Every single time, like really high risk. Mm, I think it was. Yeah. But the fact he kept, I, I, he kept getting more and more money, so I suppose 
his chance of bankruptcy became less and less. Yes. But, yeah, he was able to set his own terms. So I presume it wasn't just Maximilian who was paying the ridiculous amounts <laughs> on top. In 1489, Jacob was attending the Frankfurt Trade Fair, as he did every year, and it's thought that that was then and there he met Maximilian. And Maximilian decided he wanted to take back Vienna for the Habsburgs, and Jacob agreed to lend him the money. And in fact, Vienna capitulated without a fight, so just like Sigmund, Maximilian <laughs> said, right, on to Hungary then. Oh, no. <laughs> they never just think, oh, that was good, that was easy, yeah. I can pay back the money. Stop and consolidate. And again, they were fighting the Turks, so they didn't want to be bothered with Maximilian. So they signed an agreement opening Hungary up to German merchants. Okay. And Jacob was first in line, and he had an investment plan in mind. Because the Tyrol had those silver mines, but Hungary had copper mines. And copper was useful not only for minting coins, but when mixed with tin to make bronze, it could be made into cannons, as we saw in Leonardo's episode, right. when he was forced to hand over the bronze he'd stockpiled for the giant horse. Right. To make Ecole d'Este, cannons to protect himself from the French. <laughs> and that's what Jacob planned to do. So now he's an arms trader as a money oh, lender. Oh, <laughs> and now he's definitely going to be making money. Oh, yes. He was sinking everything into this venture. I don't know what the other Fugas thought. They must have been panicking. He obviously a bit of a, I was about to say a loose cannon, a bit of a pun, but, <laughs> but in the Fugger family. So he's actually giving up the Fugger family money, not just his? I'm not sure. Um, at this point, we only, re only hear about Jacob. Okay. I think the others are just sort of getting on with their job. <laughs> and he's just huh. gone into a sort of... Rogue. Yeah, he's gone to, to, to entirely different levels of wealth. <laughs> wow. There was a lot of upfront capital needed to sink more mines, to build a smelter to refine the copper, and a factory to manufacture the cannons. And Jacob said of the risks, quote, most of the time ten perish before one gets rich, unquote. So he was hoping he'd be the one. That's so risky. Mm. And with the Turks so close, he was taking an even bigger risk. Yes. And also, how binding was that treaty that Maximilian had made with the Hungarians? Could they just rip it up? Or could they follow the line of the treaty, but still make it difficult for German merchants to operate? Hmm. So he's taking a hell of a risk. And to try and alleviate these problems, Jakob went into business with Johannes Thurso, who, apart from being an expert in... I never know whether it's metallurgy or metallurgy. I've heard both, so I should go with metallurgy and mining. He had Hungarian ancestry, so he'd be able to trade even if... Even if they get rid of the Germans. Yeah. And Thurso was an expert on pumping water out of mines, which was a huge problem because many mine owners were mm -hmm. sitting on a gold mine, so to speak, but they, they couldn't afford to pump the water out of the mine or keep it out. Yes. I watched a... There was a documentary about the copper mines in England during the medieval times. And they used water wheels, and they would pump water in in order to pump more water out. I didn't understand it. They tried to explain it. <laughs> I just kept was thinking. Was it sort of whooshing it down from one end so that everything sloshed through and out yeah. the other side? So the water coming down was at a higher pressure, forcing the water from the bottom up to the surface and out. 
and you'd end up with a negative amount of water in the mind. Yeah, your facial expression is the same <laughs> as mine when I was trying to understand that. And when the water wheels weren't working, they used donkeys to run the pumps instead. It, I, I don't know. Mm. It was very interesting. But the fact that they used water in to get water out just totally blows my mind. I don't understand it. If anybody can explain it better than I just tried to, please do. <laughs> well, maybe that's Thurso's secret. Yes. Yes. The water. And I think that was actually, what was that? Worst Jobs in History. All right. With Tony Robertson. Robinson? Yeah. Robinson I think yeah. it was one of those episodes where he got to go down into a mine and they explained it to him. Nope. I'm, I shall have to think about that one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> think about the logistics of it. Well, Yakov built the factory so there could be lookout turrets that would spot the Turks. And it was made more like a fortress than a factory. Probably smart. Yeah, but it was an environmental disaster. Fuga's men felled trees for miles around to fuel oh, furnace. Oh, no. And they rerouted rivers to use the water and to dump rubbish in. Oh, lovely. Humans are so good for the planet. Mm, we just... Anyone who complained was quietly bought off, but not bumped off, bought off. <laughs> when you started with quietly, I was like, oh, no, now we're into murder. That's how they get the water out of the mine. They just fill it up with bodies. <laughs> we were talking about alchemists being the forerunners of today's scientists in some episode or another. I forget which. <laughs> there have been so many. Fuga employed alchemists to do research into using metals that cr create gold, presumably employing uh -huh. copper, I suppose, and also to teach alchemy. And one of the young men who who they whom they taught became Paracelsus who was the father of modern medicine and definitely oh. on our list of Patreon subjects. He wrote a book on the diseases caused by mining, including black lung. Which Really? It was yeah. known then? Mm. And my granddad died of black lung, so he's a miner. So obviously <laughs> there was not much um, leap in the medical thing. No, in preventative between medicine Fuga's didn't time and, Yes. Uh, yeah, and then... Fuga and Maximilian were both hard taskmasters. If there was industrial action, rather than negotiate, Maximilian sent in the troops. Okay. But I don't think that was uncommon. No. There wasn't a lot of negotiation, was there? <laughs> no. I've told you what we are going to do. Yes. I'm, I've told you what I'm going to pay you. And if you can't afford to live on it, that's your own problem. <laughs> and in one of Fuga's mines, one of the workers was executed. I don't <gasps> know what for. You can yeah. execute somebody? Apparently so. Oh, God. He also petitioned the church to get miners exempted from fasting so they'd be strong enough to keep working. That's nice. Did it work? I presume so. He's Fuga. These things work. Jeez. Fuga, knowing the importance of getting information first, set up his own news service. And this wasn't to disseminate news around to people. That was to get information to him, to him oh. alone, faster than the okay. normal postal service. So we're not talking about he set up a printing press and off he went. Well, he's, it's said that he published the first newspaper. But oh. They apparently looked like newspapers. But newspapers are meant to give information, spread it around to lots of people, not just yes. bring it to one person. So, I don't know, he's, he's said to be the first newspaper proprietor, but I didn't think, I didn't think that was quite right. Okay. In 14, this is Fuga all over. In 1498, there were no monopoly laws, 
only the understanding that businessmen would act in a Christian manner. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a little cynical there. <laughs> so a group of mine owners, including Fuga, set up a cartel to fix prices on copper and ensure vast profits. And they asked, they had to ask Maximilian's permission, but since they pointed out that the more money they had, the more they'd be in a position to lend him, that was pretty much a formality, I think. Yeah. Fugger sent his copper mined in Hungary to Danzig, and the other members of the cartel sent theirs to Venice. But Fugger was not really a team player. If he wasn't at the top and alone at the top, then it wasn't worth doing. He decided to take the others out, the others in the cartel, down from the inside. He started sending his copper to Venice in huge amounts, flooding the market with cheap copper. Wow. It was a dangerous move. He was counting on the fact that he was rich enough to take more of a hit than the others could. And it turned out he was right. Oh my goodness. The other members of the cartel stored the copper in depots, waiting for the price to pick up, but Jacob just kept sending more and more copper into Venice. And one by one, the others went under. Wow. So... They complained, they complained to Maximilian that Fuga was acting in an unchristian way. But, well, for a start, Maximilian was busy elsewhere. And also, it must have occurred to him that it didn't really matter who had the money as long as the person was going to lend it to him. <laughs> <laughs> and out of all of them, Fuga was the most likely to lend it to him. So I think <sighs> Maximilian was quite happy that Fuga had all the money. If he had a different way of working than most of his counterparts. And we could see it as, a, as going from a medieval to a modern method. He had clerks in each branch who kept detailed records. And one of the clerks was a very flamboyant character called Matthias Schwartz, who worked all his life for the Fugas. And he criticised those who, quote, write down their dealings in poorly kept scrapbooks or on slips of paper and stick them to the walls or make them reckonings on window sills, unquote. That sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're not As we're researching, <laughs> there's notes stuck everywhere. <laughs> but Fuga... <laughs> had ledgers and filing cabinets, and he'd studied double, double entry bookkeeping. I don't know what that is. It's when you write in what goes in and what goes out. It's quite simple, oh. Oh. but no one was doing it. The Italians, the Italians bankers started doing it, and that's why they got they were so far ahead before the Fugas stepped in and the Wellses. Right, and it seems like quite a quite a sensible thing, but obviously other people were doing what we do and sticking <laughs> things to the wall. <laughs> Jotting things down on bits of paper. Uh, and he was like Henry VII in that he checked everything. And there's a note scribbled in the margin in Fuga's hand next to an entry about how much a mine manager was spending on food and lodging, which is a minor point in the huge scheme of things that was Fuga's financial empire. <laughs> and yet he's written, quote, I don't know what's going on here. Unquote. So. It's a minor point for a mine <laughs> that a miner wrote. <laughs> But it's that attention to detail that made him so successful. But it'd be yeah. hell to work for, wouldn't it? You wouldn't get away with anything. No, micromanaging at the penultimate level. Mm. Mm, not so cool. No. In January 1498, Fuga married. He was 39, she was 18. He had the money. She came from an old prestigious family. That was all there was to it, really. Yes. So he's buying prestige. He's, he's buying prestige and she's buying money, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Or she's she's hoping for the money. Or probably her family are hoping for the money, more to the point. Yes. 
1505, Fuga negotiated to be part of a trading trip around Africa to India as part of the Portuguese effort to break the Venetian hold on the pepper trade. He's sort of biting the hand that fed him, really. I mean, he's Venice, yes. but taught him everything he knows. In fact, he ended up putting 4,000 florins into the, into the escapade compared to the Welsers, the other banking, big banking family in Augsburg. Uh, they put in 20,000 florins. The ship returned with so much pepper that the price plummeted. <laughs> and, but King Manuel of Portugal confiscated the cargo. <gasps> really? Yeah, but what, that was turned out to be a good thing, because when the Welsers and the Fugas finally got it back, the price had risen again, so they tripled their investment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the Welsers went on to fund many trips and gained their wealth from overseas trade, which was lucrative but risky. And Fuga decided to leave them to it, since he found he could make just as much buying the pepper from the Portuguese and selling it onto Germany with barely any risk at all. Wow. He was able to supply the Portuguese with copper and silver, with which they could bargain on their voyages to India. And Fuga became one of Europe's largest spice wholesalers. Whatever wow. he does, he ends up being the largest one. Yes. It, do you have any stories? Sorry, it's probably a spoiler alert. Does he ever fail? Does he have a venture that doesn't work for him? I'm trying to think. If he does, he makes it work for him. Wow. In some way. Like the pepper, I suppose. I mean, it, it was doomed to fail because there was so much of it, it was going to... But luckily for him, yeah. it was confiscated. He That's... just seemed to be remarkably fortunate in his dealings. And a genius. That's a genius level that I've... I don't mm. understand. Wow. Okay. Well, this marked the end for Venice, and they even ended up buying their pepper from Portugal, presumably, oh. via Mr. Fugger. Oh, Fugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must have hurt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Among the many services Fugger provided for Maximilian was saving him from himself. <laughs> but I was thinking... Who was going to save him from Fuga? <laughs> that was his biggest, biggest problem. Fuga was paying some of the public officials who worked for Maximilian. And bizarrely, Maximilian knew all about this and thought it was a good thing since it saved him money because he didn't have to pay for them himself. It didn't occur to him that if he wasn't the one paying them, they wouldn't have his best interests at heart. I wonder if it was that he didn't, it didn't occur to him or he figured this was the exact same as what was going on everywhere else. Like how many foreign kings were paying for their courtiers in other people's kingdoms to put in a good word to that king? The only difference is, is he's not paying them a wage at all now. I suppose the other kings are paying their own courtiers to go over and... To not necessarily. Um mm. In Louis XII's episode, I'm assuming this is coming out after that, Louis was paying Cardinal Wolsey and Charles Brandon. Well, that's true. Yeah. And in the Diplomats episode with De Ayala, we found that they got paid even after they left their destination country and got back home. Mm. And it was all out in the open. Every king knew that every other king was paying their courtiers. Well, I think Maximilian must have been... It must have been at a different level in Maximilian's court because it was commented on so much. Right. Well, if he's not paying them at all, that is a different dynamic. Yes, because other people were getting money from both, both sides. Yes. yes. If Maximilian isn't paying them at all, then they are Fugger's men. Yes. 
They're not, there's no ambiguity at all, is there? Not at all. The Lisbon agent for the Welsers said of Maximilian, quote, he has advisers who are parasites that control him completely. They are almost Ooh. all rich, but the emperor's poor, unquote. Yeah, that's not a good system. No. No, it's, and there was, I can't really see any way out for him. Not unless he can find money somewhere. Oh, figure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can you do me a favor? Can you pay me and I'll pay them instead of the other way around? <laughs> I don't think that would suit Mr. Fuga. Ma Ma Machiavelli said, quote, His easy nature causes him to be deceived. A friend of the em emperor told me that anyone could cheat him without him knowing it, unquote. And it even oh. took him ages to realize that the copper Fuga was selling him at premium prices actually came from his own mines. Oh, ouch. Mm. Mm. Poor Maxim. Oh, bless. <laughs> oh, bless him. <laughs> really do feel like that. Virtually every turn you think, oh, Maximilian, come on, just pull your head out of the sand. You can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> the Medici turned wealth into political power. Fuga didn't want to do that, although he was able to manipulate events just using the giving and withholding of loans. Which is basically political power. It is. It's not so upfront as I mean, the Medici took over. Yes. Florence. Yes. But he's a little more underhanded, I think. Mm -hmm. Fuga's investments in Hungary, which, that he got when Maximilian gained the merchant rights for the Germans, and which was now Fuga's biggest earner, well, his investments were put in jeopardy by a peasant's uprising. An entirely justified one, I think. <laughs> and the incursion of the Turks. Yes. Which, it's all too convoluted and really quite brutal to go into so another time for that I think okay but Fuga needed someone to settle the Hungarian problem so that he could trade in peace we should probably tell people that if they do want more detail on the Hungarian and the Ottoman Turk problem that the next special episode for Patreon is Sultan Mehmet indeed to explain all this issue well I can't wait because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's very detailed. I'm trying to figure out how to make it a little bit less confusing. Or chaotic. Or frenetic. Frenetic is a better word. That's, that's from what the bit I read. That's why I thought, yeah, another time. <laughs> Definitely another time. <laughs> so if Uga needs someone to settle this situation, he turned to Maximilian and told him, marry off some of your family to the Hungarian royal family, or there'll <gasps> be no more loans for you. Seriously, he dick tried to dictate that to Maximilian. There's no tried. Obviously, Maximilian Oops. was onto it like a shot. Uh, his grandson, Ferdinand, would marry Anne. Yes. And the granddaughter, Mary, would marry Louis. Yes. Who, as we saw in Maximilian's episode, hadn't been born yet. <laughs> right. And so the Austro-Hungarian Empire was born, and it was Fuga who gave birth mm. to it. Wow. Hmm. I know, it's unbelievable, isn't it? This power this yeah. man can wield. And at the double wedding, Fuga brought some bling for Maximilian to wear so that he looked more the part of a fabulously wealthy prospective granddad-in-law. Oh, my goodness. Just like the Fugas had paid for his dad. <laughs> <laughs> to dress properly. <sighs> wow, my brain is just... I, I can see diplomatically people saying you should marry so-and-so to so-and-so because we've just committed or we've just invaded your country. He's done it just by money. 
Mm. Well, what else is Fuga? Fuga has nothing else to bargain. Yes, but the fact that it was successful is just surprising. There is no physical violence implied, just you're going to starve. Which I guess is physical violence, in a way. Wouldn't so much be starving, but he wouldn't be able to play the soldier, would he? And we do no. know that, that Maximilian would rather like to be Maximilian the Great rather than, what was he, Maximilian the Skint? Yes. The pocket, pocket denarii. Yes. Yeah. Up to his 50s, Fuga had been living relatively modestly in his mother-in-law's house, which was half-timbered and actually sounded lovely. But Fuga bought the house and two others either side, knocked them down and built a palace. Of course he did. Mm. So sentimentality is sort of there. <laughs> well, same place. But apparently the, it had marble floors, which were meant to be a death trap because they were so slippery. Oh. Um, and had columns and fountains and gold everywhere. It's a pity because the other house sounded so much nicer and this one yeah. just sounds tacky. We like cosy. Yes. I think people get depressed in massive great houses. I, I don't find them interesting. I always feel like you're walking into... After you've been to a couple of beautiful, architecturally designed mausoleums, then you go into a big fancy house with nothing but marble, and it honestly feels just like a mausoleum on a much bigger scale. Yes, or sort of giant urinal because it's so echoey and... and <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. A lot of the Tudor houses are quite cosy, aren't they? Yes, they are. Not the, the huge marble things. I'm just thinking about Montacute House, which we've got just cl close to us. And it is gorgeous. Yeah. Lovely, beautiful, biscuity-coloured hamstone. And the the rooms are doable. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're big, but they're not ludicrously big and echoey yes. and lonely. I have that dichotomy. I love the look of the elegant design, but... If I have to live in it, I want it as comfy cozy as possible. Yes. And you can't do elegant and comfy cozy at the same time. At least I've never found one that works. No, I don't think I'll be very good at elegant. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Um, this house, part of the palace was open to beggars, apparently. Bit of conscience solving there, I think. I think so. <laughs> and a lot of it was warehouses with rooms for wagons to go in and out. Sorry, with room for wagons to go in and out. So it was basically a warehouse, but with living quarters. Yeah, and a proper nobleman wouldn't have needed warehouse space. No. Because Fugger's new money. Yes. Although he was a count, because remember Maximilian had to make him a count because he'd given him two cities. <laughs> yes. He never used the title. He just referred to himself as Jacob Fugger. So I wonder if he knew he was new money and the nobility proper would have been laughing at him behind the hand. True. In 1512, Jakob Fuga's brothers were dead, and he had no children. He announced one Christmas that from now on, the firm was to be called Jakob Fuga and Nephews. Oh. Mind you, they shouldn't get any funny ideas. <laughs> of course not. They were to have no power. They were to conduct business in strictest secrecy and to tell no one about it. So, first rule of Fuga Club there. They were not to sign anything without Fuga's consent. So what were they actually doing? Working for him, I think. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like they were allowed to do anything. Well, their money from the business was still theirs. That's fine. Okay. No one was going to touch their money, but they had to keep it in the business. So and it's not your money anyway? Not really. And Jacob also had the right to change any part of that contract without telling anyone, even the nephews. 
Oh my <laughs> goodness, that's not a contract. So welcome to the firm, boys. Ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's going to be fun working for Uncle Jacob, isn't it? Jacob Fruger was a, was Catholic. It's hard to tell how fervent a Catholic he was, but he was definitely Catholic. He financed the building of churches and monasteries and other religious buildings, as his people always did. Mm -hmm. He got round any feeling of guilt that he might have about being rich. What with Jesus having thrown out the moneylenders from the <laughs> temple and said <laughs> easier to go for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, Fugo got round this by saying that God gave everyone skills and his skill was making money. You know, what can I do? I'm just very well, good at it. <laughs> I'm doing what God told me to do. Indeed. I was built for this. And he said he had no trouble sleeping because he put aside daily affairs as easily as shedding his clothes before going to bed. But as we know, the church took a very dim view of usury. Yes, it was not allowed. It was not allowed. Usurers burnt in purgatory. And to prove it, the clergy dug up the body of usurers and pointed to the decaying flesh, teeming with worms and maggots. And these, these creatures were the familiars of the devil, and it was God's way of showing what mm. he thought of usurers. You know what? These people are disgusting. They <laughs> 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 are. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's just... But I did like the fact they dug, they dug up the usurers and said, look, they're rotting. Yeah, but they didn't dig up any decent person and say, look, they're rotting. No, because that would have ruined it <laughs> completely. Oh my gosh, that's so gross. I wonder how many people were throwing up as they were trying to say this. <laughs> yes, a bit like um, detective things, isn't it? With a rookie detective coming yes. across the body. I'm just sorry, that's just... I did like the lateral thinking, though, of saying, look look at these people. Yeah, They're rotting. Oh, I have the heebie-jeebies. Fuga couldn't ignore the usury ban because, as you said, it was illegal to charge interest. Yes, but the Pope also borrowed money from people. Yeah. Well, Popes. <laughs> <laughs> but people had a funny idea about usury because if they deposited money with Fuga, they expected to get their 5% interest. Yes. But if they borrowed from him, they suddenly got all uppity about the morality of usury and said it was wrong. <laughs> to have to pay interest. Oh, my goodness. Fuga wasn't afraid of excommunication since he believed that if he were excommunicated, so would all the many, many other Christian moneylenders in the economy right. would collapse. And where would the churchmen get their loans? Very true. But there was a backlash against Fuga as he got richer and he felt the need to nip this in the blood. In the blood? Nip this in the bud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Does he kill people? <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> Everyone hated usurers. Aristotle likened them to pimps, and Dante likened them to sodomites. I understood the pimp reference. I'm not sure about the sodomites. <laughs> I'm not sure either. Christian moneylenders cleansed their profession by renaming interest as penalties or gifts, processing okay. charges, handling fees, booking charges, as we get these days. Yeah. Or you could do what the Medici did. They lent money in one currency and had it repaid in another. And that way, the interest could get lost in the complicated currency conversion calculation. Ah. Mm, clever. Yeah. Augsburg was a city of Christian moneylenders, since they'd expelled the Jews in 1438, and used their gravestones to build the city hall. Oh, no. Mm. There was a rivalry between Nuremberg and Augsburg. Nuremberg had all the inventors and makers, 
Augsburg had all the money lenders, and Augsburg was becoming much richer than Nuremberg. So it doesn't pay, to, even in those days, it doesn't pay to make things, it just pays to have a service industry. Yeah. And Nuremberg decided that the way to bring Augsburg down was to hit the money lenders where they were vulnerable religion. And Fugger enlisted the help of a university professor, Johannes Eck, who wrote a dissertation justifying usury, which then sparked a debate similar to Pico's debate, except that this one actually took place. And that's a Patreon <laughs> res- reference. <laughs> Not only understood by patrons. <laughs> the argument was to do with the Augsburg contract, which stated that depositors were promised 5% on their loan. Okay. So if the lender risked bankruptcy, just as the borrower did, it wasn't usury, because the lender couldn't be sure of massive returns, they might lose out. So that was the idea. If, if you lent money knowing that you'd get it back and it was all perfectly safe, that was usury. But if you risk bankrupting yourself lending money, that wasn't usury. That was the debate. The debate was risky since if Eck lost and the Augsburg contract was said to be usurious, no one would then deposit money with the bankers again. Oh, no. It was only that they could kid themselves that it was somehow okay <laughs> that people part- participated in banking. Right. That would change the entire economy if they actually went through with that. It would. You'd be going right back to early medieval economy, I should think, wouldn't you? Yes. I know people would probably disagree, but the reason we have so much, even inventiveness, is because of the economy. If you can't provide yourself the support prior you wouldn't be able to do any of the work. Mm. A lot of, like, I know this because there's startup capital investors. You don't have the money. You've got the idea, but you can't actually do anything with it unless you have the money. And most often, you don't have the money in order to find out if your idea works. That's why they have to get those loans. And if you hand over your idea to someone who has the money, will they actually say that it it was your idea? Or will Mm -hmm. they claim it for themselves? Or they'd say, no, it's too risky. I'll just put it on a shelf and not do anything with it at all. Yeah, it's Hmm. hmm, interesting. The debate took place in Bologna. The German cities decided the topic was too hot to handle, really. Eck and his opponent debated the issue for five hours. Wow. In the end, the judges said they couldn't decide between them and called it a draw. That's not helpful. No. That's not an answer. They hadn't said that the contract was usurious, so that was something. Yes. However, soon after, the Pope, Leo X, issued a papal bull that went against centuries of church teaching and said that interest was not usury. Which is because... (laughs) You needed money for the crusade. I think you're being extremely cynical. (laughs) He said it was payment for labour cost and risk, which seems fair enough, but it's a bit of a slap in the face for Nuremberg. (laughs) How much this verdict came from the fact that Leo, like every other pope, borrowed from Fuga, I guess we'll never know. (laughs) So is that precedent setting from now on? Yeah. Loaning of money and interest is fine? Yeah, it opened the gates to mortgages, higher purchase, overdraft, and all those things that blight our lives today. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Leo. 
Johannes Eck, incidentally, later became the man who shopped Martin Luther to the Pope. On Fugger's orders? I guess we'll never know. Oh. In 1514, Fugger lent money to Albrecht of Hohenzollern. Quite a lot of money. But why should we care? We've never heard of this man. I'm <laughs> sitting here thinking, what? But we should care because it triggered one of the biggest events in history. Is this... Sorry, I'm going to let you continue. The job of the Bishop of Mainz was up for grabs, and this was an important job. The Bishop of Mainz set up the agenda for the imperial diets we heard about in Maximilian's episode. Yes. It's as if one man could decide what the English Parliament could discuss for an entire season. Yes. It's a bit like being Lord Chancellor and Archbishop of Canterbury rolled into one. I read that he was second only to the Emperor in power, but... How powerful was the emperor? I don't think he had that power. Maximilian had no power. Mm. Bless him. He thought he did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Mainz was the only city that called, could call itself the Holy See, apart from Rome. Really? I didn't know any about, anything about this. This was the highest post in Germany, this bishopric of Mainz. There were three candidates, one of whom was Albrecht of Hohenzoller. Okay. And he was considered the best qualified. He was underage, he was just 24, he was underqualified because he had no degree, and he was ineligible for the post since he already had two other bishoprics. Then why is he eligible for the post? Well, he has something that the others didn't have. Money? Fuga. <laughs> ah, yes. The position would have to be bought from the Pope, and that Pope was Leo X. Not that it makes a lot of difference. I mean, the ones we've been through so far, it could have been any of them, couldn't it? Yes. But it would all be plain sailing. Albrecht had the most money, so of course he was the best man for the job. He was 20,000 florins worth of the best man for the job. Oh my goodness. But then Martin Lang, the Bishop of Salzburg, and the man that put that tin crown on the head of Maximilian, ruined it by pointing out that Albrecht had those two other bishoprics already. And that put a different spin on it, and the Pope could hardly let him have the Bishop of Mainz job now. Not for that price, anyway. <laughs> Gosh. So Leo let it be known, via a secret intermediary, that he wanted 12,000 ducats. And I'm not quite sure about the ducats to florin ratio, but ducats are worth a lot more than florins. Yes. A, a thousand ducats for each of the apostles. Wow. Oh, and it was to be paid into his own bank account, not the Vatican's. Oh, even better. He was offered 7,000 ducats. That's 1,000 ducats for each of the sacraments. <laughs> and they compromised on 10,000. That's the equivalent of 34,000 florins. So that's quite a leap from the original 20,000. Yes. Fuga transferred the money into Leo's greasy little bank account. But now, how was Albrecht going to pay the money back to Fuga? Indulgences were not a new thing. They'd been given to people who went on crusade, and later they were given to people who funded the crusade. 
Yes. And people were quite happy to bung a few quid into the crusade fund because it spared them a few thousand years in purgatory. Yes. But now Albrecht had to work out a way to fleece the faithful now that there was no crusades pending. And Leo hit upon the idea of rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. And indulgences could be given to those who donated for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. Okay. But secretly, the Pope would take half the dosh and Fugo would take half the dosh. Oh, no, really? Hmm. And as the Pope said, and I reiterate, as the Pope said, quote, How very profitable has been this fable of Christ, unquote. Oh, wow. His tutor, Savonarola, must have been turning in his grave. Oh, and he's the Pope. <laughs> he's the Pope. <laughs> a priest, Johannes Tetzel, was sent out with a big cross, a picture of the devil, and a large money box to travel from town to town. So I suppose you point to the cross and say, you want this? And you point to the picture of the devil and say, you don't want this? And then you point to the box and say, Fill this. so you need to put something in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And behind him, at a discreet distance, were Fuga's auditors. And there were set amounts, depending on your status. Kings and queens and bishops had to pay 25 florins. Counts and barons, 20 florins. Merchants, 3 florins. And workers, 1 florin. That's not as much as I thought they would have asked. I'm sure they'd accept more. Yeah. I'm sure it was pointed out to you, you know, this is, this is your minimum. Right. If you give more, then obviously you, you don't spend so many years in purgatory. <sighs> Tetzel told people to imagine their little children crying out to be absolved from their sins. Oh, that's not okay. They travelled all over until they reached Saxony. And in Saxony was an unknown 33-year-old scholar who was outraged by what he'd heard was going on. <laughs> he knew it was just a ruse by the Pope, and he was infuriated about it. So infuriated was he that he wrote 95 arguments against indulgences and stuck them to the cathedral door at Wittenberg. I know who this is! <laughs> he also sent these, what you might call theses, to important and powerful people, including, unfortunately, Albrecht, Bishop of Mainz. Because obviously he didn't realise the Mainz connection. And he wrote, quote, Father in Christ, a most illustrious priest, forgive me that I... Scum of the earth should dare to approach your sublimity. I really got to put that into something like an email. <laughs> I, scum of the earth that I am. <laughs> May your highness look upon this speck of dust and hear my plan, unquote. Oh. And he asked Albrecht to investigate the scam of the indulgences. Uh, oops. But Albrecht didn't write to specks of dust. I mean, why would he use the Bishop of Mainz? But he did pass that speck's letter on to the Pope. Uh-oh. Mm. I always wondered how it went sideways for him so quickly. He wrote to the wrong people. Yes. We saw in Maximilian's episode that the Tyrol Council investigated Maximilian's finances and found that Fuga was ripping him off left, right, and centre. Yes. Well, they didn't investigate because they worried about Maximilian. They obviously didn't think, bless him. <laughs> <laughs> what concerned them was that this relationship between Maximilian and Fuga might lead the region into bankruptcy. Oh. Since with every loan, more of their assets were disappearing. Yes, and firm assets, things that shouldn't move, like mines. Hmm. As an example of Fuga wringing what he could out of the emperor, he lent him 130 florins 
and earned a profit of 466,000 florins. Holy cow. I mean, that is that is payday loan type. That's beyond money, payday loans, I think. Mm. And the huge fart silver mines should have meant that the Tyrol would be rolling in money. But no, it's Fugo who's rolling in money. And Maximilian, who was a little woolly lambkin, financially speaking, <laughs> thought he was doing really well out of the deals because he would look at what the copper and silver mines were worth as a snapshot. You know, this is how much they're bringing out today. Right. And it was less than Fugo had lent him, so he thought, great bargain. Right. But Fugo was looking at how much he could get out of the mines for years and decades to come. Yes. And that was a massive amount. Yeah. And it was a massive amount that the Tyrol felt was rightfully theirs. And you certainly have sympathy with that view. Yes. Maximilian selling off the mines not only affected their present cash flow, but also their future income. So Fugo was condemning the region to poverty indefinitely. Yeah. Fuga's argument that was, was that when you're dealing with royalty, you had to charge high interest because they were an unsafe bet. If Maximilian had refused to pay him, there'd have been no redress for Fuga, because Maximilian was the emperor. Yes. Who could force him to do anything? If you look at Edward IV, his refusal to pay pretty much brought down the Medici bank. Yeah. Jakob Fuga was lucky that Maximilian did honour his debts, although, as we saw, he did leave one or two little outstanding debts behind him when he died. <laughs> A little. <laughs> <laughs> but later Fugas will be bankrupted by Philip II's inability to pay back the money that he borrowed for the Armada. Is this this Fuga or his descendants? Later, later Fugas. Right. And this was a dangerous time for Fuga, since some of the Tyrolean councillors were all for throwing him in jail and seizing his assets. Ooh. Instead, the council offered Maximilian 400,000 florins to break his ties with Fuga. And I wondered if it was Stockholm Syndrome, because Maximilian refused. Yeah. Mm. The Holy Roman Empire. Why did Francis I want it, and why was Charles eventually persuaded to go for it? I don't know. This seems like such a poor thing to do. Well, that wasn't what I thought I've got here. You may think, why wouldn't they want it? It's an incredibly prestigious <laughs> post. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing that comes with it except a title. It's just words. You don't have any more control. You don't, but by this time... It was prestigious because Maximilian had made it so. It might not have brought in a lot of money, but it did have the prestige. Hmm. So the council had had to beg Frederick to take on the job since nobody wanted it. Because we saw no land, yeah. no taxes. I think my portrait of Maximilian in his own episode may have played down just how much he did build up the prestige of the post. Yes. Even if he had to do it in a tinfoil crown. <laughs> Anyway, he died in 1519, that's Maximilian. And although Maximilian had relied on Fuga for everything, as soon as he died, Charles dropped Fuga and chose to get his bribe money for the election from the Velsers, or Welsers, or Velsers, and several Italian banks. Do we know why? Uh, he already had other bankers, I think. Okay. I suppose you stick with the one... I mean, I've not changed my bank ever. So I suppose you do stick with the bankers, bankers you know. And it sounds like he's diversifying where he's getting his money from, so no one person has that much power. It does make sense, but Fuga does have that much power. Ah. And he's cross. He was infuriated by this. 
he didn't want to have his banking supremacy put in jeopardy by some spotty teenager. <laughs> so he retaliated by cozying up to Francis I. Not to the extent where he actually offered him a loan, but he just made sure that he was in contact with Francis and that everyone knew he was in contact with him. And it was Margaret of Austria, Charlie's aunt, who told Charles to get back in with Fuga before Francis got him and their bid for the empire went out the window. But she felt that Charles was obligated to Fuga because he'd made Maximilian what he was, for what that was worth. <laughs> Not much. No, but she, she might have had the wrong reason for doing it, but she had the well, right idea. Well, she was idea. also getting told by Maxi what it was like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and bless him, he didn't seem to see that this was a bad man. <laughs> That's Saint Maxi to you. <laughs> Francis realised, too, that it wasn't going to be a contest on merit, but purely a matter of who had Fuga. Really? He had gotten that much power that it's going to be based on whoever gets to him first? Yes. Some of the electors openly told Fuga that they would vote for his man. With the right palm greasing, obviously. Right. Francis asked Fuga for 369,000 florins, offering him prompt repayment and a 10% commission. Well, this was a good deal for Fuga, but he was a Habsburg man. He'd done well out of them in the past, and he expected to do even better out of them in the future. So he made sure that Charles's people got to know about Francis's offer. In 1520, Pope Leo X was getting worried, because if either Charles or Francis won, Rome might be threatened, because Francis had Milan, Charles had Naples. They were too close for comfort. Right. What Leo wanted was a third way, you know, someone with no threatening lands in Italy and someone who could act as a buffer between Rome and her potential enemies. Did he try to get Henry VIII to go for it? It's Henry VIII. <laughs> <laughs> but, he has no land anywhere near you. <laughs> He's as far away as you can get. Yeah, well, I didn't come across this when I read about Maximilian's episode. Maximilian had thought of this before. When he feared that he might die before Charles reached majority, he actually offered to adopt Henry as his son. Really? Yeah, and Henry wasn't keen. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope's offer seemed more interesting and a bit less creepy. Yeah, well, is this before or after Henry had written his arguments against Martin Luther? Not sure. Okay. Not sure about that. Because if people don't know, Henry VIII wrote basically a book against all of the 95 theses of Martin Luther and was declared defender of the faith, which the British monarchs still keep that title, even though it was supposed to be a title for Henry only. It was not supposed to be passed down. Yeah. Well, Charles said he was going to be defender of faiths. Our Charles. King Charles. I forgot he was King Charles. Because um, he said, yeah, he wants to be defender of lots, all the faiths, not just one. Oh, that feels so weird, King Charles. In the future, the Queen has recently passed away. Mm. And so now we have King Charles. But the coronation hasn't happened yet. No, that'll be a while. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be most odd, I think, when we start seeing his picture on the banknotes. Yes. One of the reasons why Henry was quite open to the Pope's offer was that it would be one in the eye for Francis I. Yes. And that counted for a lot with Henry. Yes, it did. And Henry wasn't a bad bet for the electors either because he hadn't yet worked his way through daddy's money. 
Yeah, he was still rich. Hmm. So he sent an envoy, Richard Pace, to check the viability of all this, and Pace travelled around Germany, tackling the electors one by one. The first okay. four he talked to, he only talked to four, um, they each agreed in theory. This sounded like a good idea, so Pace was really buoyed, and well, bored enough to tell Henry VIII to pack his lederhosen, the deal was in the bag. But the election, this is interesting, this election took place traditionally in a tiny room at the back of Frankfurt Cathedral. And the procedure was similar to electing the Pope. The electors all file in, and they're not allowed to come out until they've chosen someone. Really? They had to sleep on straw mats and pee in a bucket. Oh. And if they hadn't decided in 13 days, their rations were cut to just bread and water. Right, so that's pretty similar to the Pope. Hmm. And there was mayhem outside the cathedral, as the Habsburgs had put it about that Francis I was just about to launch an attack. Oh! I think it was propaganda. He said, no, I didn't no plan to do anything of the sort. Charles was still holding out and refusing to accept a loan from Fuga until he heard, and I'm not sure how he heard, since the electors were meant to be in seclusion, although yeah. their servants were going in and out, Charles heard that the electors were going with Fuga, regardless. Really? Mm. Whoever had Fuga would win. It was simple as that. So Charles capitulated and accepted Fuga. So 14 days after they went in, so that's one day on bread and water, which might have sped things up, <laughs> the electors emerged and said they were voting for Fuga. No, Charles. <laughs> Charles. Definitely Charles. <laughs> hmm. Yes. <laughs> Henry VIII was happy enough. He hadn't won, but then neither had Francis. And Henry had just saved himself a lot of money. So yes. I think he was probably only doing it to be a thorn in the side of Francis. <laughs> But all in all, this had cost Fuga 544,000 florins, and that was the biggest loan Ooh, ever made. Oh, ow. Yeah. So why was he so keen to stick to the Habsburgs? Loyalty? Sentimentality? They're dumb enough to give you more and more things? <laughs> well, Maximilian had had nothing, apart from what Fuga had lent him. But Charles, the oh, King yeah, of Naples, Charles. the Archduke of the Netherlands, the Duke of Gelders, the King of Sicily, etc., 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 and King of Spain with all the New World resources behind the, uh, behind him, and the King of actual Spain. This is Ca um, Castile and Aragon are now under one person. Mm -hmm. Well, he was an entirely different prospect. <laughs> mm -hmm. However, the Imperial Diet then turned on Fuga, saying that it was dangerous to have someone so rich that they could affect politics. And Charles agreed, mm -hmm. despite the fact that if Fuga hadn't been able to affect politics, Charles wouldn't, wouldn't be have become him. emperor just a few weeks earlier. Yes. Charles still had to pay Fuga back, though. <laughs> they will borrow, and then they think, oh, right, how are we going to pay? Get rid of you now. Well, he asked for a tax hike to do this which led to riots all over Spain. Because for some reason, the Spanish didn't see why they should pay for their king to become emperor of somewhere else. Yes. I mean, they're very picky, these Spaniards, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Charles clamped down violently on the protests. But he did also promise to forget the tax rise. So it was beginning to look as if Fuga wasn't going to see that 544,000 florins. So it was beginning to look as if this might actually push Fuga under. One, oh. one loan too many. Around this time, Augsburg saw the unveiling of the 
Fugurai. I'm going to call it Fugurai. It's Fuga with E-I on the end. And this is 106 homes built by Fuga for the deserving poor. And it's the oldest continuously inhabited example of social housing in the world. Oh, that's lovely. It is lovely. The houses are lovely. I'd like one. They're really nice. The only problem was that they all looked the same. And people kept walking into the wrong house. So they tried a novel idea. They put numbers on the door. This is where addresses came from. This is where numbers for houses first came. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah. And later it was the home of Mozart's great-grandfather who lived at number 14. Oh, that's so neat. Civics have have arrived. That's what we call them. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah, and they are lovely. They're a big tourist attraction for Augsburg. They still exist. Mm. They still exist and they're still social housing. That is fantastic. Mm. I wish we had stuff like that in Canada. Our history doesn't go back very far because it doesn't. Everybody just tears it down and moves (laughs) on and builds something new. (sighs) Well, they do that here too. I mean, you look at parts of Oxford and you think, why were you allowed to do that? It was gorgeous. Mm. They put this bizarre building shaped like a, uh, what do they call, concertina file. Oh. Made out of concrete. Hideous. And that was it back in the 60s or 70s. They didn't know any better in those days, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Despite this act of pious charity, following the imperial elections, Fuga became public enemy number one, and much of that was to do with Martin Luther. Right. Luther had been called to Augsburg to explain himself. The papal emissary thought that it would be an easy process to grind Luther down until he recanted, but <laughs> Luther stood his ground. <gasps> But the Pope had promised not to arrest him, so they couldn't really do much to him at that point. For some reason, he was staying at the Fuga Palace. What? Maybe there was... Well, they had the beggars' quarters. Maybe they had a sort of hostel area as well. I'm not sure. It's not thought that he met Fuga there, but the opulence of the palace apparently disgusted him. Huh. And he resolved to be Fuga's irritation from, from that time on. In Germany, Luther was pushing against an open door. <laughs> As I heard someone saying, pushing against an open drain, which I thought was rather good. <laughs> as far as reform went, the German princes were already fed up with indulgences and debauched priests and sale of offices, which was a bit rich, given that the self-same princes had just accepted bribes for the sale of the Holy Roman Emperor <laughs> itself. <laughs> but it's quite, it's quite easy to be smug about other people's. Misdemeanors. Yes, it is. Not only did he have Luther against him, but also an impoverished knight called Ulrich von Hutten, who wrote several anti-fuga tracts. And he justified the sort of highway robbery that knights indulged in, saying that taking money by force was, quote, honest theft, unquote. But taking money by fugas underhanded practices was truly criminal, and he said that the wrong type of thieves were hanging from the gibbets. And thanks to Hutton's barrage of insults, Fuga then became the sort of stock image of the oppressor. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Luther initially mo- wrote more generally about people who fleece their clients, naming no names, although it was obviously who he was getting at. But then he homed in saying, quote, we must put a bit in the mouths of the Fugas, unquote. And Luther took to print in a big way. As we saw in the Northern Renaissance episode, his was the first campaign to use printing. Right. So his ideas were disseminated really quickly. Yes. 
and Luther and Hutton represented the two sides of protest, those the peaceful and the violent. And Charles V was worried about the use of printing presses in this protest. He took them over and placed Fugger in charge of them. That does not seem like a good idea. Not really. Well, it's too late anyway, because Hutton had already convinced some other knights to join him, and Fugger, having spent so much time funding troops for other people, now had to fund troops for himself. Right. Since he was one of the main targets. The ensuing battle was called the Knights' War, in which the knights were soundly beaten, not least because they were knights. And warfare had moved on quite a bit since horses and swords. Right. So that was that for... That came and went, and Hutton hid out in Switzerland, where three months later he died of syphilis. And it was the (laughs) first time we got this in this episode. But Do we have that squishy off. sound effect now? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't found one squishy enough. <laughs> Hutton's gone, but the groundswell of hatred for Fuga had not. The investigation into Fuga's activity was still going on and revealed its findings in the 1522 Imperial Diet in Nuremberg. Fuga had been more confident last time because whatever the outcome, he knew that Maximilian had no option but to stick by him. Yes. But Charles was a different matter because he hadn't wanted Fuga in the first place. Yes. So at the moment, he's looking at losing his whole loan and being indicted for oh, geez. for dodgy dealing. And this tribunal was interesting in its use of lawyers because this was a new breed of person. Unpo- it was unpopular right from the start. And next season, maybe we could do an episode on the rise of lawyers, but not now. Okay. Lawyers had been in existence. You had canon law. People studied yes. law. But I don't think they'd stood up in court and said, this is a tissue of lies. I think, oh. this, I think this is where all that starts. I have to look into it, but not now, because it's already quite a long episode. Fuga started by fighting fair, but when it looked as if that wasn't working, he fell back to bribing people. And he was normally a very calm, sanguine person. I don't mean, I mean sanguine in the general sense. I don't know about <laughs> his humours. <laughs> But he seems to have become severely rattled. And he wrote to Charles, quote, You will order that the money which I have paid out, together with the interest upon it, shall be reckoned up and paid without further delay. It is well known that without me, your majesty might not have acquired the imperial crown, unquote. I thought would not, rather than might not have acquired it. Yes. So, whatever Charles thought of the letter, it did the trick, because he shut down the proceedings against Fugo with immediate effect. Really? Mm. Because he didn't have the money to repay. He doesn't have 544,000 florins on him. But he's also the imperial yeah. empire and all of his other countries. He could have just said, no. I know. I'm not paying you. But he didn't. So that's, yeah. that's a tick, tick in the Charles column. Yeah. You're actually honoring your debt. I suppose being religious... Helps with that sort of thing, maybe. Mind you, I don't does know. it? I, we've just seen the Pope saying <laughs> the <laughs> fable you can get out of this, this Christian malarkey, isn't it? It's a real <sighs> cash cow. Yeah, yeah, he even said that the Fuga that Fuga and his family led, quote, honest, upstanding Christian and God fearing lives, unquote. So he was really panicking, thinking, I haven't got the money. What the heck? <laughs> that makes n- hmm. It's not as if Fuga had... He wasn't an Emson. He didn't have... No one's going to go around and beat Charles up. 
No, and he's already given up most of his money. So how does he get more money to get it back? I, I don't see how that worked. Well, he's still got money coming in. He's still got silver mines, copper mines, cannons. Yes. Presumably the but textile industry. But after giving industry. up that much money, I can't imagine he has. Even if he's the richest person in the world, he he just handed over a lot of money. But it's still coming in. He's yes. got he's got the he's the biggest pepper importer, not importer, yeah. but yeah. mover mover about her. He's um, it just keeps coming in. I suppose that's why he's so rich is because he makes sure he doesn't have people buy land. But that's only money when you sell it. Yes. If you've got a mind, he's got a diversified got a business, portfolio. He has. Fifteen twenty-five, the Battle of Pavia. Charles V has Milan at the moment. Mm-hmm. He gained it in fifteen twenty-one. I might put a timeline on the website about who has Milan when. That would be fantastic because that's insane. It's just, it's like it's like a hot potato. People are just throwing it backwards and forwards. But Francis wants it back. And he arrived unexpectedly in Milan and chased the imperial mercenaries to Pavia. Okay. Where they were holed up, expecting to die of hunger and disease. Oh, that's a lovely outcome. Hmm. Well, just as it was all looking completely hopeless, Fuga money arrived. And I'm seeing a helicopter, I don't know about you. And, uh, well, I'm started wondering, are they going to eat it? Well, presumably it means Fuga money to buy food in the area that can then be... Ah. Yeah, I mean, he's, he didn't just drop bags of money from this <laughs> helicopter. I'm still seeing a helicopter. It's a catapult. <laughs> he's Could throwing be. it up and over the walls. But that supplied Pavia long enough until Charles arrived. So again, wow. Fuga has changed the, changed the course of history. Right. Espe- especially since during this ensuing battle, France I became separated from his troops, troops and was captured. Do we know why Fuga did that? Was he asked by Charles? He must to have been asked by the- Charles. Hmm. So you go from, that's it, indict him, to, oh my gosh, no, I need money. Hi. Yes. Knock, knock, knock. Yes. I'm your friend again. I think, well, Maximilian dropped him a couple of times, didn't he? And said, yes. oh, I don't need him. I don't need him. And then five minutes later, bring me Fuga. Yeah. That's the three o'clock in the morning. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just working out. Now, if I pay so and so, such and so, and I pay so and so. I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, God. (laughs) Where's Fuga? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we won't look at why why Francis was uh, captured, because that's his own episode. But as a side note, someone we know died in this battle, and that is Richard de la Pole. Aww. That's the end of the de la Pole. You still think of him as a little boy, because he was the young one. Yes. (laughs) But he was in his, what was he, 1819, when he finally left his brother? Mm. Yeah, I can't imagine he's very old. Soon after this, Fuga, who, as we heard in the syphilis episode, had a monopoly on Guayac from the new world. I say had a monopoly on syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> well, he effectively has, because he now he bought the lease from Charles for a large mercury mine in Spain. Oh, so he's got mercury what... and Guayac, both of which are, as we've heard, wonderful cures for syphilis. Yes. And with this mine, he was able to get back the money he spent on Charles's election. Of course he is. Mm. Everybody who has syphilis is desperately trying to be cured and will pay any price. Yep, syphilis pays. Ah, uh, yuck, squishy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not going to cover the German Peasant War. We'll get to that in good time. And we can look at Fuga's role in that. This episode is quite long enough. And the Peasant's War is long, complicated and really depressing. Oh, do we well, have to cover it then? <laughs> you just sold it really well. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> but anyway, Fuga was ill. He had a growth on his stomach, but had refused an operation. Probably wisely, his brother had died following an operation. And it caused him such pain he could hardly get out of bed. I wonder what it was. He battled on for a few months. He managed to read his will out to his family before he died. Which seems an odd thing. Usually you wait until after you died and someone else reads it out, but maybe it done differently in those days. Or perhaps he wanted to see their faces. <laughs> <laughs> he gave the business to Anton Fuga. And the family tree got quite confusing here. I don't think he's one of the nephews. Oh. Did he not have any children himself? No. Okay. What happened to his wife? Oh, we're coming to her. Okay. I'm not sure of Anton's relation to Jacob. In his previous will, Fuga had been very generous and affectionate to his wife, Sybil. Mm-hmm. But recently she'd started to show interest in Lutherism. Oh. Which, which is a bit bad, isn't it? What a slap in the face. I'm not going to... That's worse than if she had just taken on a quiet lover to one side. Yes. And thanks to that, this will was not quite as generous or affectionate. Oh, She should have just kept her feelings to herself until the old man was safely dead. Yeah, shut up. Mm. <laughs> and Fuga's last business decision was to reject a request for a loan by Duke Albrecht of Prussia because Albrecht was a Lutheran. Oh. <laughs> Fuga died at 4am on December the 30th, 1525, and a black rainbow was seen over Augsburg. Uh-huh. What did he do? <laughs> Throw tar over it using a catapult? I, I'd be very intrigued to see a black rainbow, but I can't even visualise how Neither this Neither can works. I. I'd be worried that the sky just ripped apart. Hmm. How? Jacob's epitaph said, quote, to God, all-powerful and good, Jakob Fugger of Augsburg, ornament to his class and to his country, imperial councillor under Maximilian I and Charles V, second to none in acquisition of extraordinary wealth, in liberality, in purity of life and in greatness of soul. As he was comparable to none in life, so after death is not to be numbered among the mortal." Unquote. Oh, so he paid somebody a lot of money to write that because it's all bleep. He didn't have to. He wrote it himself. Oh. <laughs> After his death, his wife remarried very quickly. Was that because he left her nothing? She claimed that she hadn't wanted to, but had been forced by threats of violence from Fuga's nephews. Oh. Since if she was married, they only had to pay half of what was owed to her in the will. Oh. So it's nice to see that the money grabbing from Fuga jeans didn't die out with Jacob. No. And I was thinking, so that's the end of him, but we could have a quick look at in what ways did he make an impact? Huge. In starting, starting relatively small. He was the first in Germany to use double-entry bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. He was the first anywhere to consolidate his business transactions into one statement, so he knew precisely how much each sector of his business was doing. Right. He was the first to send auditors to check on branch offices. It seems like he is the generator of modern economics. Yes. It must have been a hell of a shock for the branch offices. Suddenly did yes. a visit from an auditor. Sorry, you're a what? A what? A what? <laughs> What's it? So what are you going to do? 
Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Burn everything. But I mean, even if you take just separate parts, that's impressive. But putting it all together really is modern mm. economics. Yes. He persuaded the Pope to lift the ban on money lending. Yeah. He financed the army that won the German peasant war, for better or for worse. And the thing I didn't go into, but we might well do an episode on the Hanseatic League, he really emasculated them. They had a, had had a monopoly on the North Sea trade, and Fuga put a stop to that. Right. He unintentionally provoked Luther into writing his 95 Theses, which had quite <laughs> far-writing consequences. <laughs> he probably funded Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. Ooh, that's cool. Mm, but we're not sure, but he probably did. He built a model village of social housing, which is still in existence today. He supposedly published the first newspaper in the world. He made Maximilian make peace with Venice, if you remember that. Yes. After, after his, his, in inverted commas, coronation. Yeah. He created the Austro-Hungarian Empire by making Maximilian marry off his relatives. He made Charles V the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes. He enabled Maximilian to do everything he did, for better or for worse. Fugamani won the Battle of Pavia, in which Francis I was captured. And I'm sure there are many, many others that I've forgotten, but that's quite a, quite a that's list. That's a huge impact. Mm. He gets a 10 out of 10 for a team. He certainly does. And Mr. Mick, before doing this podcast, I had never heard of him. Neither have I. <laughs> but, fascinating man. Yeah. And... I'm just thinking, well, how would, would, would he do in our categories? Intrigue, would, definitely. Yes. <laughs> Amphibily, pretty huge. Yeah, well, he he pretty much ran Europe. Yes. The, From being a younger son, who would have had absolutely no power, really. Especially not if he was made a monk. <laughs> no. Mm. Um, what else do we flaunt do? Flaunt to flaunt? I don't know. Ah, Nice picture of him in his golden hat. He looks very modern day. He does. He's got very tight lips. Yes. Very, yeah, as if he's sort of pondering, shall I give this money to these people? What can I get? Yeah. His hat is sort of, you're right, it's kind of like a fez, but a fez crossed with a beret. Hmm, soft, softer material. Yeah, very, very glossy black clothing. So very wealthy clothing. Mm. With a very white linen undershirt, which is also an indication of wealth, of how white it is. And the fact that you don't have to do the sort of things that are going to make it dirty. <laughs> yes. But with the short hair and the whole style, it just looks like a modern day person with, um, oh, what are those coats that you see riders with? They're like canvas coats mm. for cowboys and stuff. It's that kind of, it looks like that kind of cut. And that hat, you could easily see people wearing at a festival. I can imagine yes. people wearing that at Glastonbury. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. No mm. symbology, though. Is symbology a word? It is now. <laughs> My husband <laughs> asked me that once and I said, did you understand what I meant? He said, yes. That according to the dictionary, that's a word. A sound or utterance that conveys meaning from one person to another. Ah. Yep, Shakespeare did a lot of that. People <laughs> reckon he's pretty good. But what I find interesting is either it's painted on wood 
or the painter did an amazing job in painting the uh, wood grain mm. into the background because you can actually see the lines for the paneling. It's a if. very fine picture, isn't it? Yes, it is. He looks as if he's wearing, I don't know, something crossed between a smoking jacket and a dressing gown. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't. That's not a face that's. You, you it's not kind. No. And I see absolutely no smile lines whatsoever. No. No. No frown frown lines. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't think he even frowns, does it? I think I think that is no. the expression that you will always see. Yeah, poker face. Mm. So you'll never have any idea. But I suppose that's what the expression when um, new people went to talk to him about getting loans for Maximilian <laughs> things, and he'd say, "Oh well, I'm actually quite tired at the moment. So I'm thinking of giving it up." He would yeah. then look at them like that, and they'd think, "Oh right, oh well, that's a pity." Whereas, in fact, that face means, you know, I'm asking for better terms. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he was an interesting one to do because I just kept coming across more and more thinking, he's running everything. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. everything. He's running all of trade, it seems, and all of all of politics. Crazy. When um, the German electors say, we don't care who it is as long as they've got Fuga behind them. That is, that is massive. Yes. Well, if we go for the big question, is he too delicious? I'd say yes. Yeah, I don't, it's a pity we chose too delicious because it does sound sort of sweet and cuddly and yeah. covered in sugar. <laughs> he <laughs> is yeah. not sweet and cuddly. I would say he would, he would have got it, yes. Yeah. What a pity for him we decided to do him as a special episode and not as a real one. <laughs> <laughs> but then if we had done him as a regular one, we'd only be able to just discuss his interactions with the English. Yeah. Which, which is just, barely anything. It was just that bit with Henry VIII. Yes. And Richard de la Pole. You brought him in. That's true. But that, yeah, Richard de la Pole died and Henry VIII was actually in contact with the Pope and not with Fuga. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Very cool. Hmm. That is the end of our episode on Jakob Fugger. We hope you have enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Who Knows? Because <laughs> this is a special episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.